NASA is a very open organization when it comes to sharing our data. It's important to do that because we can't do everything, but maybe somebody else can look at our data and help out with some other ideas too. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Esri Australia. To get your hands on more short, sharp and immediately useful resources, head to the Esri Australia website and search for Goldmine. Welcome along to the GIS Directions podcast. I'm Wayne Lee Archer. I'm Riley McGlusky. And today, Riley, we have a very special guest lined up for you. Yes, very special. A GIS star that does work that's kind of out of this world, but I'm going to say pointing towards this world and just, just <laughs> hovering on top. I see what you did there, Riley. <laughs> very, very clever. Joining us all the way from Washington, D.C. today, we've got Jeremy Kirkendall. He is the Senior GIS Administrator for NASA's Disaster Program. So welcome along, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, guys. Now, Jeremy, full disclosure, I'm a long, long time admirer of the work that you guys do. I think it was Jack Dangerman himself who described you as one of the world's most innovative GIS users. And seeing some of the data and applications that you guys produce to monitor climate change and environmental phenomenon. And I really have to agree with Jack's words. And uh, of course, lately, one of the things that uh, many Australians in particular will have taken notice of, or at least seen, is some of the work that Jeremy's been doing uh, with modelling and mapping 3D smoke plumes for bushfires. Jeremy, I saw a fantastic piece of work that you put out there uh, through your natural disaster program. Thank you. Uh, That 3D plume model has been one of our most popular products lately. It's really neat to see what's traditionally been data shown in a 2D format brought into the 3D realm because you get to see the actual structure of the plumes from the uh, fires. And it brings the disasters to a much closer perception to everybody that's looking at these. I think one of the things that struck many Australians was, um, you know, we live daily with the smoke here in, in Canberra in particular, right up in our faces. But the modeling that um, I saw that you've done there in three dimensions actually shows that that smoke plume wound up going all the way around the globe and coming back to bite us in the backside, essentially. Mm. It was a, a really um, quite an eye-opener to see just the extent that the smoke from those bushfires actually covered. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of technology and what kind of data sources you were able to use there at NASA to actually map that kind of, of information and do that kind of analysis? Everybody thinks of NASA as, you know, space and... <laughs> yeah. And Earth science is a really big part of NASA. So we've got satellites that are looking at the composition of the atmosphere so they can monitor the aerosols from those wildfire smoke plumes or from volcanic eruptions. We've got satellites that are looking at the oceans and watching as they change and influence the hurricanes and other things like that. We have satellites that are watching vegetation so they can see when it's been burned by a wildfire Mm -hmm. or if the droughts have been impacting it somewhere. There's a lot of different instruments. And They all look at things like a different combination of wavelengths of light to see if vegetation is healthy, or they're looking at the temperature of the land or the water. There's an amazing amount of data that's being collected by NASA satellites. I think if if many of our listeners were to pop open uh, any old Esri map and have a look down that bottom right-hand corner, there's usually a a credit or or some sort of, uh, you know, copyright notice that says produced by NASA. Is is this kind of data that we're talking about, Jeremy? There is some imagery that is probably provided by NASA in some of those base maps. There's a lot of other layers that might be added. I know one layer that gets added to a lot of applications 
is the uh, the thermal hotspots. If you're wondering where the fires are, those two instruments, which are aboard uh, four different satellites, they cover the Earth enough times throughout the day that you have a pretty frequent update of when different hotspots, which are frequently associated with fires, uh, are going to be detected. And, and you can watch the fires move across the landscape throughout the day using those uh, satellites. And is, is that real-time data? It's near real time. Wow. You know, satellite observations are great, but there's still some limitations. Things like uh, it's not the movies. You can't aim the satellite wherever you want. It's got to pass. <laughs> so, you know, the satellite passes over the disaster that we're looking at. And then it's also got to pass over our ground station. So we can't actually talk to that satellite until the satellite dish on the ground can see it. Then it downloads the data, it gets processed in our data centers, and then some of those products are automated, others are being created by the scientists as quickly as they can, and then they get pushed out to people like myself to put into places like the Disasters Mapping Portal. I think the most impressive part about all of this is the level of work that goes into capturing this data and then distributing it. And NASA is actually quite generous in giving this data free to the public and basically anyone else can use it. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and maybe some of the imperativeness of providing that data to the public for free? NASA is a very open organization when it comes to sharing our data. There's a lot of things that NASA has helped invent or provided data that has led to the invention of. And it just, it helps so many people to make all of this data freely available to anyone to use. Our data can even be used by commercial providers and it doesn't cost them anything to do that. And it's important to do that because we can't do everything, but maybe somebody else can look at our data and help out with some other ideas too. And when you make all of this data open, well, other people can bring their data sets in and just like uh, our uh, tropical cyclone dashboard shows, you can do some really cool things when you bring a lot of people's data together. We can show you where the uh, soil moisture conditions are going to be, where the hurricane hits. We can bring in the National Hurricane Center's path that shows where the hurricane is going so we know exactly where they think will be impacted. We can bring in the census data and look at what kind of vulnerable populations would be exposed as that storm's coming. So things are a lot more powerful when you have everybody's data together. hundred percent. I think it's one of the last pure forms of science for curiosity, not profit. And it's great. And so essential as well. I mean, um, I feel privileged that we've managed to catch you there at the National Disaster Center, Jeremy. Um, this is one of those essential um, services that we rely on so heavily. We're going to soon be coming into the storm and cyclone season uh, here in Australia. So uh, what you know really gets my attention is that this is global data, isn't it, Jeremy? We're not just talking about US data, are we? We have two types of products that we'll create. We create some that are event-specific, like an image of a burn scar. That's gonna be one specific fire, but we have a lot of data sets that are global and they update all the time. And a lot of these are being turned into near real-time data sets and hosted in places like the Disasters Mapping Portal. And those near real-time data sets, they have that global coverage so that anybody can use it. You don't have to necessarily ask NASA to help with a disaster. There's already data there. We can show you where are the uh, hot spots from the fires. You can use uh, natural color imagery and see burn scars popping up. We have flood products that will show you where the floodwaters are popping up. We've got products that will show you where the landslides might be happening due to rainfall. 
Wow, that's amazing. And, and all of this is available just online for the taking? Yes. So the portal hosts all the data freely and open to anyone to use. There's not even a login requirement. You can stream the data using either a REST endpoint or a WMS endpoint from the portal. And you can also just look at it in the portal if you don't want to bring it into your own system. You just want to check it out on R. And we've got some, uh, some story maps that help show how to use these data sets. That's one thing we try to do a lot is show what's possible. So, you know, I can show you where the floodwaters are, but, but what does that help? Well, you need to know where's the infrastructure. So then the emergency manager brings in his critical infrastructure and he understands that maybe there is a bridge or a power plant or an old folks home that we need to worry about being impacted by floodwaters. That's the value of making our data open to everyone. That's such a, a valuable insight there because I think, you know, that's probably the way that, you know, certainly most Australian uh, analysts or, or data scientists have been consuming uh, the data that, that comes out of NASA. As I said, it's a, a kind of the, the silent achiever in, insofar as a lot of data coming out of NASA. I'm just you know, now starting to realize, you know, the depth of what Earth observation is and the role that NASA has in, in that place. I've got a very high level question for you, Jeremy. Go for it. I want to ask, what is it like to actually work at NASA? Because I'm making the assumption here, and I've made this assumption since I was like a kid, that to get a job at NASA, it would kind of look like getting a job at the Stonecutters on The Simpsons, you know, so you don't even have to save a person's life who currently works at NASA or be, be born into NASA. How does one get a job at NASA? And this to all my colleagues, I'm not trying to get another job. <laughs> and also, what is it like to work at NASA? Well, it's, it's pretty awesome. I've definitely wanted to do something like this since I was a kid too. And it's as amazing as you would think it is. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's great because you get to do new things all the time. NASA is a research agency, so we're not making the same products every day. We're making different products to solve new problems that pop up. We're trying to figure out answers to questions that have never been answered before. You know, how can we combine new data sets in a new way to solve a problem that nobody's ever worked on? And it's just very refreshing. You get to do so much different work and everybody's always excited to do it. It's a really great environment to work. And the best way to get into this is to realize that NASA has a lot of different specialties. You can work on earth sciences, you can get into aerospace engineering, you can do biology. There's literally any kind of scientific application you can think of is most likely going to be done at NASA by somebody. Yeah, I could imagine it would be such a surreal feeling like finally getting the email domain or like a business card or something like that and having that <laughs> acronym at the end. Oh, couldn't even imagine. Yeah, it's really cool. My first position at NASA was uh, running the GIS for the Wallops Flight Facility. It's really cool to see GIS is actually used in support of rocket launches. You know, I'm, I'm running a system that helps get the food up to the astronauts on the International Space Station. That really, you know, sums up the importance of, of the data uh, that, that we see coming out of NASA and that uh, obviously that NASA actually consume themselves. It sounds like there's a bit of dog fooding going on there insofar as uh, in order to get all that stuff up to the uh, astronauts, you've got to have some uh, satellite data to map it and then uh, coordinate that. So it's a bit of a cyclic affair there. And what I would like to sort of really point out is that all of that's available to people to actually make their own inferences from. So whether you actually get that nasa.gov uh, email address, Riley, or not, 
the data is there for you to actually make the most of anyhow. Yeah, if you want to grab any of the NASA disasters data, if you go to maps.disasters.nasa.gov, you can get all of our near real-time data. You can check out the tropical cyclone dashboard and see if any storm is uh, heading towards you, what the soil moisture conditions look like. You know, if you're worried about a drought and potential wildfire conditions getting worse, it's all available to anyone here to use. And a lot of our stuff is showing up in ArcGIS Online as well. So you can search there for it too. And that's a great tip for us to leave on there, Jeremy. Thank you so much for your time today. There's something for all of us to take away from uh, from today's session, whether you're into natural disasters, whether you're into earth observation or earth sciences, have a look down the bottom right-hand corner and just check that the data that you're using hasn't come from NASA. We're going to share all of the links that, uh, that Jeremy's talked about today up on the GIS Directions podcast website, gisdirectionspodcast.com.au. So be sure to head over there and check it out and head on over to the NASA website and see some of the great work that Jeremy's been working on with the team. I'd also love to hear how you guys use NASA's observational data. So jump on the website and send through your maps or connect with us through Twitter. That's right. Now, thanks again for joining us, Jeremy. Hopefully we can have you back on the show someday soon. Thank you very much. It was great to talk with you guys. So thanks for joining us. Happy mapping. Thanks, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Esri Australia. 